Welcome everyone to episode zero of the Products from Scratch podcast. We're two engineers. I'm Ashwin and Mike's on the other line. And we're talking in this podcast about creating a technical product from nothing. And there are a couple of reasons we're doing this. Number one is to keep ourselves accountable. We're both pretty hardworking, but uh, it helps to have ears on us every week to sort of ensure that we are you know, doing what we say we're going to do. And you get to see how these things turn out. And then the next reason is that we've never really heard something like this having been done before. So most times people write about technical progress in the retrospective, but we want to give it to you sort of as it happens. So we have, you know, real products on the line that we're going to build and they may fail as most startups do, but we'll find out what happens. So yeah, let's get to it. So Mike, you want to start us off by telling the listeners how me and you work together and up until this point? Sure. So Ashwin and I go back to Stanford. We were both class of 2010, both majored in electrical engineering. And we, after graduation, we went to New York City to work on a startup with a few friends. All right. So what kind of startup was this? So the startup was called Lexeme. It was in the translation space. And when I say translation, I mean from one language to another. We were focused very heavily on contextual translation, which is stuff that Google Translate does not do well at. Um, Ashton, do you remember any of the examples that we were heavily targeting? Yeah, I can recall quite a few, especially Chinese examples, where Google Translate would just give a totally botched rendition of the English or like vice versa, the Chinese. I think recently Google Translate has gotten much better at that. But back in the days, it was not so. Yeah, so how did that startup go? It was a pretty eye-opening experience for me and I think for all of us where, um, you know, it was just five of us with no previous startup experience, but with a lot of exposure to the startup world because uh, Stanford is definitely very ingrained in the startup world. The biggest takeaway for me of why it failed is uh, we never found product market fit. We spent too much time kind of holed up in our rooms and tried to build various versions of a product. And we got out talking to various people a little bit too late. I remember I was going down the streets of New York City, talked to a couple schools that were ESL focused, uh, English as a second language focused, and the teachers and students both were willing to use our product, but that was only one side of the marketplace. It was too difficult to find people willing to contribute the translations uh, at a high enough quality and at a, at a frequency that we were able to sustain our marketplace. That was my biggest takeaway. Uh, how about yours? Yeah, I agree mostly with that. For me, one of the biggest failures was sort of the failure to see this project as an actual business that would earn money. So I came into it thinking, oh, this would be really cool to like start a, a website. And I sort of had this dream where, you know, everybody in the world who ever wanted any translation or language learning or what have you would like congregate on this website and everything would be magical and great. But I didn't really think about it from sort of like an operational standpoint or a money-making standpoint. So from operational standpoint, I didn't know, you know, how would people find this website? Why would they want to actually use it, et cetera, et cetera. And then money-making, you know, how would we charge people for this kind of thing? Like, you know, some companies in Silicon Valley can like get away by just having tons and tons of users, but they're usually for like services that are so basic, like, you know, texting somebody else and not something that's complicated like translation, that you really need an actual business model when you do something that's, you know, even fairly niche. So, yeah, I think that's a lot. And I mean, also, we were really young. We were, you know, 21, 22, 
and we didn't really know anything. We'd never had real engineering jobs. So that probably contributed a bit to it also. I also agree with that. And I just wanted to add one more thing. I, I think uh, with our age, uh, a lot of us, we had some ego and uh, we would get bogged down in these arguments that looking back just uh, didn't have any bearing on the success or failure of the product. And so in the future, if we, we were had these same similar arguments, we would learn to just get through them much, much quicker, realizing that it's very unlikely that some of these arguments actually matter in the end. So Michael, can you give me an example of a of a drawn out debate that you thought was not useful to the company's success or failure? Yeah, so there was one incident where we were really trying to figure out what kind of users would use our platform. And the group that you were thinking of was language users and how they could potentially use our platform to help them get through a lot of their homework assignments and essays. And I felt that was a little bit more almost like a like a cheating kind of application where we wouldn't be helping the, the students actually learn about the language or answer their homework. Instead, it would basically be doing the homework for them. And I was opposed to that. But looking back, it actually cost us probably a couple days of some back and forth, and we got pretty heated about it. And if there was just some way to better manage that emotion or manage that kind of debate in a more timely manner, it would have just saved us so much energy. Yeah, that sounds good. So Ashwin, after Lexeme, what'd you end up doing? So after the summer ended, I took a job at 23andMe as a software engineer. And uh, that's a genetics testing company. And I worked there in Mountain View for probably just about four years. Um, and by the time I came out, I was a senior software engineer. I had a pretty good API design under my belt, um, api.23andMe.com. And uh, after that, you know, sort of, I had worked a, a good amount as an engineer and I wanted to go do something else, you know, travel a little bit, try to work on my own thing. So I sold all of my possessions and then I moved to Taiwan sort of on a whim to write Mandarin language learning software because, you know, I was still and I still am very interested in languages like Lexeme was. So tell me a little bit more about that. It seems like we've tried or you've tried a couple different versions of language learning software. Uh, what have you learned in terms of uh, the, the product itself, the people that would end up using it and any other lessons along the way? Yeah, I, I would say so sort of from the first iteration of this Lexeme, which was, you know, translation software, I realized I didn't want to work on a product that I was not personally invested in mentally. And so for me, you know, I don't really care about translation as a person. Like I care about language learning. And so that was like, you know, that's like all the justification that I didn't have to do the first translation project. And it just, it saps the energy out of you if you're not if you're not somebody who like really finds it useful. So in this next one that I did called Outspoken, I wanted to write Mandarin language learning software for people who were learning Chinese. And the way that I did that was by hiring a bunch of freelancers in China and, you know, developing these sort of like random sentences where people would go to the website, hear the random sentences, and then like have these words fixated in their memory. That also didn't work out you know, for the reason that it was a pretty quick progression from me working on software that was directly useful to me. And after I passed the beginning Mandarin level, because I was living in Taiwan, I started to find the software less useful. And then, you know, I found the software less useful, you know, I, I lost energy to work on it. So I, yeah, I stopped. I, I recently, you know, shut down the website, I refunded all the customers that I got. 
And now I'm going to work on iteration number three. Can you elaborate on how you're going to change stuff up with iteration number three? Yep. So this time, you know, I tried to think as long-term as I possibly could. So instead of trying to think of, you know, a space in which maybe I'll just completely lose interest, I want something that is a lifelong skill for me. And one of those skills is being able to read fluently in other languages. This is something I've done, I've worked at, you know, my whole life. I started with Spanish. I really want to be able to do this in Mandarin. I want to be able to pick up a novel and read it without sort of, you know, leaning on a dictionary or, or something painful like that. So, you know, it's something that I think has a lot of potential. It's not done well right now. And uh, I have a lot of experience with, you know, Chinese freelancers and just developing language software in general. So I think I have a pretty good shot. And it's something that I know I, I know for sure I will be interested in for the rest of my life. So Ashwin, one of the things you mentioned you learned from attempt number two is that the rate at which you learned Mandarin outgrew your product. Uh, your product stayed quite basic. And so you, you lost the usefulness in that product. How do you avoid that in your third attempt? Yeah, I think for me, it was actually very easy to outgrow my own software because, you know, the very beginning level of Mandarin for me was, in fact, the easiest. I mean, just, you know, learning how to use simple characters, et cetera, is the kind of thing that I would do in my daily life in Taiwan. So it was really easy to clear that hurdle. What I want to do here is I want to, you know, I want to learn how to read and at the very highest level of Mandarin, there's an official Mandarin test. It's like the Chinese equivalent of the TOEFL. It's called the Han Yu Shui Ping Kaoshi. And that has like 5,000 words at the highest level. That kind of mastery is really, is something that usually takes many years to achieve. So I'm not really, I'm not convinced that like I would be able to outgrow my software this time. I mean, doing something like that would require really an enormous effort, like without software to do. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's a, it's a problem that I'll have. One more question on this subject. What was it like for you to, to quit 23andMe? And how did you make the decision then to move, sell all your stuff and end up in Taiwan? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just about that time. I mean, working for about four years at a company, you know, in Silicon Valley is like an eternity. And, you know, I'd done some really good work there. I sort of learned what I, you know, basically everything that I thought I could learn. I didn't really want to stay in the Bay Area and, you know, get another similar job. I wanted to do something pretty drastically different. So, you know, that's why I sold everything and, and moved over. So looking back, do you think it was a, a good idea to move to Taiwan at the time? I think yes, from a personal perspective, but not from a business perspective. So I think, you know, at that time, it was really good for me to get out, do some international traveling, you know, live in a different country sort of experience just radically different things from the US. And, you know, I will never regret that experience. It was a really good six months. In terms of a business perspective, I think I sort of assumed a lot of risk that I didn't need to assume by moving to another country. And these are things that are, it's hard to quantify, but, uh, you know, let me give it a shot. So, like, one of the things is when you move to an entirely new culture, you know, there are a lot of things, you know, just like renting space and like learning how train tickets work and, you know, getting into a rhythm where you're like exercising every day and eating well, all that stuff takes a huge amount of mental energy. And you should probably rather be focusing that energy on like building something. So that's something, you know, 
I wouldn't suggest doing. Another thing is at the time I also was learning a new programming language called Go, which I still use now. But at the time I was a novice and uh, I sort of like assumed the risk of being able to learn a new language and being able to create software, which is a terrible idea. I mean, you should start with like with reducing as much variability as you possibly can. And for software, that means, you know, using a language and framework that you're already comfortable with. Like if you want to take the time to learn a, learn a new language on a project, that's great. But like, you know, don't assume that you'll be able to like do something profitable with it. So, yeah. So Mike, can you tell us about what you did after that summer in New York when we did Lexeme? Yeah, so one of the things one of our investors mentioned to us was that if you are in the startup world and you don't have a LinkedIn profile, you don't exist. And so... <laughs> Is that true? Do you really not exist? <laughs> I guess so. And so I ended up joining LinkedIn after Lexeme and I was there for almost five years and it was definitely a very great ride with a bunch of different people that I'm still very close with till today. I joined a team of 15 where I was very, very new and they spent a lot of time getting me up to speed and mentoring me throughout uh, my time at LinkedIn. One of the coolest things about LinkedIn, though, is that every single product that I worked on seemed to be some type of stepping stone, uh, whether it be more responsibility, working with different types of people or products, uh, or even different types of customers. And so I had the opportunity last year to relocate out to New York City to work with the New York City team of engineers and help grow that team out. The main product I worked out there was a product with the editorial team where I drove both the product and engineering side of things and grew the team from just me to uh, four engineers, uh, one web dev, an SRE, a site reliability engineer, uh, and uh, a team of quality engineers as well. And that was really, really fulfilling. And throughout that time, the biggest drive for me was being able to see where we wanted to go with a product, uh, articulate that vision, and also articulate how exactly we'd attempt to get there. So Mike, it seemed like towards the end of your tenure at LinkedIn, you know, you had a pretty good gig going. You got to lead product vision and all that stuff. So it seems like you could leave on a high note. So what is it that you're hoping to do next? So one of the best things about being able to spend five years at a company is the relationships that you form from that. You have people that you can always call on to run by various frustrations and issues. And there's always people coming to you that are running you through situations that you've previously encountered that can really help them. And over the past few months, talking to about 50 people that are past and present LinkedIn employees, I've seen very common frustrations among especially the individual contributors, the, the engineers that are writing software. And I see the same kinds of questions being asked among software engineers, among senior software engineers, tech leads, and staff engineers. And the question that I want to ask is, or that I want to answer is, why is this happening over and over again? We have executive coaches for senior engineering management and above. Why is it that we don't have resources to help engineers and individual contributors manage their frustrations? So Mike, you are talking about you know managing frustration for people in tech. What exactly do you mean by that? So I can maybe best illustrate this with a couple examples. The most common one that I've seen happens to engineers that are either software engineers or senior engineers that are migrating into more of a tech lead role. And they struggle with balancing the delivery of code that they are still expected to deliver as a senior software engineer, but also the responsibilities of a tech lead, which include reviewing code, onboarding new team members, mentorship, shipping code, 
handling bugs, site issues, and working with management and other peers. And a lot of them handle this in a way which they start to stretch themselves thin. They put in extra hours at work. They feel hesitant in talking to their manager who's given them this new responsibility because they want to make sure that the team dynamics are, are there and that they're a team player. And they don't know how to manage this kind of frustration that arises with accomplishing all these different goals with the same amount of time that they had previously. And so having seen this several times now and having gone through this several times now, I offer several different steps that they can potentially use to, to solve this problem. So would it be fair to say that your ideal you know, client that you're looking at is somebody who's, it seems like they would have to be really driven, right? We're not talking about engineers who are sort of, they like their job, they don't care about putting in extra hours because for them it's like, you know, they do their job to go home. We're talking about people who are like really skew very ambitious. Is that right? That's actually completely correct. I noticed this when I was talking to a, a few more engineers on my way out and I asked them, you know, what their latest frustration was. And one of them replied to me is like, you know what? I honestly have no frustrations. Like this is a great place for me to work and I know exactly what's expected of me and I'm happy doing, you know, this kind of stuff and uh, I don't have any frustrations. And that's where I realized there really is that dichotomy between people that really are driven, which I still think is a set, substantial set of uh, engineers in general and those that are okay with exactly the role that they have today. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think it's good to have, you know, very like very specific kind of person in mind that you're looking at. So that, that's good. Cool. So it sounds like you're ready to start this project. Can you talk a little bit about the logistics of this? Because you just quit your job, so you don't have an income. Like, how are you actually going to go about doing this project? Yeah, so uh, I have insurance at least till the end of the month because uh, the last day I quit was uh, the third. And after that, I'll be probably going on to the Cobra plan. I'll be working with one of my colleagues uh, out uh, from LinkedIn that I've been working with for about a year and a half. His name's Brian, and he uh, will be based out of each other's apartments And because um, the rent in, in New York City is, uh, is pretty damn expensive. Yeah, I hear that. It's <laughs> It's like that in San Francisco too. So do you plan on you know, holding yourself to some sort of schedule or like, you know, I'm going to work X hours a day. And then, you know, this is the time that I'm leave for myself as like free time. Like, how do you manage like a uh, sort of like your emotional health? So that is something that I know that from our experiences in Lexeem is super important. The sign of any time of, of tension between the co-founders, uh, that should be hashed out as early as possible. And everyone should be feel completely comfortable with talking everything out. And I know that we both enjoy going to the gym, so we'll have kind of a, a regimen. He also plays another sport, and I play volleyball. And we'll keep going to a lot of these startup events just to keep in contact with people and customers and, and stuff like that. Yeah, that's fair. I would add to that that it, yeah, it sucks a lot, and it's really easy for you to sort of alienate yourself when you're, you know, working alone or with another person, and you don't have a company to sort of keep you grounded. Um, that's that's what happened to me in Taiwan. You know, I went there on my own. You know, it was hard to make friends, although I did, you know, towards the end, make a good amount of friends. But, you know, that emotional stress is actually is, is pretty killer. So it's good that you're going to be proactive about keeping that at bay. So, Ashwin, I know you're out in Utah. Uh, what are you up to there? Yeah, so I, I moved out here for a pretty cool job. Uh, I work at a small pharmaceutical startup of like six people. And, you know, I'm the engineer here and we try to discover cures for rare diseases, like rare genetic diseases. 
it's in the, the biological space like it was at 23andMe, and I think that's how I like it. It's a really, really good job. I like it a lot. And uh, so I'm going to be doing my project in the time when I'm not working there. So, you know, just on uh, at home and then on the weekends. How are you going to maintain that kind of focus? Uh, I know one of the things that you've mentioned to me before about Taiwan is is at some point it's it's really hard to keep yourself motivated when you're working on the project alone. I actually think it's a good thing sort of to artificially constrain the amount of time you can spend on a problem. So if I'm going to work, you know, let's say eight hours a day or something during the weekdays, then, you know, when I come home and I exercise and I read a little bit, like I realistically only have like maximum two hours on a weeknight to to work on it. And then, you know, if I go like hang out on the weekends and stuff, let's say like maximum four hours of like good output each day. So, you know, we're talking about like, you know, 18 hours a week tops that I could spend on this. And I think that's a good thing. I think it really keeps your focus. Like you don't have time to fuck around doing things that are not useful or that like give really low returns. Like you can only focus your work into like high value stuff. So, you know, given my small amount of time, I couldn't do another mistake like I had done before, like learn a new language a new programming language on top of creating this software. Like I just simply do not have time for that. And I think that's a good thing. Cool. So uh, what's next for you? Yeah. So I guess, so one of the things we want to do in these podcasts is to, you know, commit to doing something for the next week and then, you know, explain to our listeners how that worked out. So what I want to do for next week is to talk to a bunch of people who are trying to learn Mandarin and try to come up with some sort of you know, archetype of the person that would buy the software that I'm creating. So I want to sort of like, you know, get into their head, try to find out what their motivations are. You know, do they have money to pay for something? Do they want to pay for something? Like what's their demographics, that kind of thing. What's their like burning need and sort of like create these character personas around them. And so, you know, my goal is to like email a bunch of people that, you know, I already know who are learning Mandarin and you know, maybe take him out to coffee or something. So I'm hoping to get at least three people to talk to me. That's my goal. All right. So Mike, what are you up to next week? So over the past few months, I've documented about 30 to 40 conversations with fellow engineers. And I've asked them the same question each time. It's what's your latest frustration and how have you uh, attempted to resolve this? And, and what were the results of that? And so for me, I'm going to go through these notes and figure out which frustrations come up over and over again, which solutions work and which solutions didn't work. So can you give me an example of, you know, some of the frustrations that have come up in your interviews with them? So one thing that has cropped up a couple times is being placed on a product that is not very shiny or very exciting and where the engineer can't see where the benefits to him or her career is. When you get placed on such a, what we call it, like a shit project, uh, how do you change your mindset so that you can avoid having to grind out, grind it out for three to four months? Cool. So it sounds like we both have two pretty concrete goals that we can, you know, try to accomplish over the next week. And uh, yeah, we're going to report back to you then about uh, what we found. So me creating these character models and Mike going through and try to find patterns in notes about people that he's already created. And next week, we're going to talk about that and also, you know, our approaches to products from a like dogmatic standpoint. So like, do we believe in things about the lean startup or 37 signals approach, Paul Graham's way of doing startups, 
that kind of thing, just sort of, you know, how people think about stuff. So yeah, come back next time and uh, hope you enjoy it. Take care. Take care.